Welcome to the Cardio Metabolic Health Podcast, the show which helps listeners drop fat, increase muscle mass, and most importantly, prevent or even reverse lifestyle-driven diseases. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Andrew Appleton, as we dive into the root of obesity, diabetes, neurological disorders, and even many cancers. Yes, these are all preventable diseases driven by various lifestyle choices that you can do something about today. Our podcast aims to take complex health topics and turn them into easily digestible information with a practical viewpoint so you can take meaningful actions right now. So join us as we do our part to reestablish the core value of health back to our community. Okay, so today we have um, some special guests that uh, we thought our audience would definitely appreciate hearing from. So we're joined by Jesse and Jazdeep from a clinic in Victoria, BC called Aroga. And the reason that we wanted to talk to these guys is because they're doing things differently. Um, And by that, I mean just their entire approach to healthcare and individual level care and empowerment of the patient seems to be a lot different than, than what we see in the typical healthcare system right now. And just as by way of a basic intro, I think everybody's kind of used to the standard version of healthcare in Canada right now, where hopefully you have a family doctor and once you have a problem, then you go and you see that family doctor and maybe you walk out of there with a prescription or uh, uh, some tests that need to be done or a referral to a specialist. Uh, but you know, a- apart from that, that's basically it. And anything else that you want to do, whether it's seek out a dietitian or a physiotherapist or you know some other um, some other avenue, you basically need to find on your own and pay for it out of pocket, or maybe you have some insurance coverage. Uh, but there are some shining star examples, I think, of of doing things differently. And and to me, at least, that's what it seems like. Um, Aroga is doing. So maybe the first thing to to cover is just if, if you can tell us what Aroga is, what's your mission, and you know, how is that different than what the traditional healthcare system is offering? Well, um, Aroga, I, I guess in order to understand the mission, you got to kind of see how it began, right? Um, and uh, uh, Jazz and I are uh, two of the three founders of, of Aroga, uh, the third being uh, Jazz's cousin, uh, Amr. Um, and uh, it began actually with a realization um, that both Jazz and I had independently that uh, uh, things weren't going well, in, not just in, 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 the, uh, in, in, in the healthcare system, but for our patients and perhaps even you could bring it to, to, a, to a higher level for our society. Um, I was chief of medicine um, at uh, the uh, South Island hospitals uh, for four years leading into 2016. And it was around 2015, 2016, when I realized, you know, like I, I, I graduated from a first rate university for medical school, did my, my uh, residency, spent time at Mayo Clinic. Uh, I've, I consider myself to be quite well read. And here I am getting sicker and sicker and sicker and I'm in my mid thirties, right? Like, like, and not, not now, but back then. And it's like, 
why? And my wife, who's a family physician, same, same question. It's like, why is it that we're doing everything right and we're getting sick and we're getting to the point where, hey, you know, here come the prescription drugs, you know, which of course I'd spent a decade prescribing to my patients. And uh, so Nicole, um, during maternity leave with our second kid, decided to go ahead and plow through all the literature. And uh, she found um, that there was essentially an entire branch of medicine that we hadn't been taught. And this branch of medicine has roots that go way back. Like we're talking back to the era of the Greeks and beyond. Um, and uh, as we went into this in more detail, this, this, this specialty of lifestyle medicine became really apparent that, uh, uh, that we had to make some major changes in our own approach to life. And when we did, all of our problems medically started dissolving, right? We became healthy. In fact, the, the most incredible thing is to be healthier every month or year that goes by instead of older, sicker, and more decrepit, which is what everybody expects. Um, and Jesse, can, uh, can you give an example of like, what were some of the health challenges that you were experiencing yeah, that so, you were trying to solve? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple of, a uh, couple of brief ones. So, I mean, I, 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 like many people in our society, relentlessly putting on weight, that was, uh, that was an issue for both of us. The issue of brain fog, which I think is a, a, uh, absolute true pandemic in our society. Um, and uh, for myself personally, I'd had some or orthopedic injuries in my teens um, that had uh, gotten to the point in my ankle where the arthritis was keeping me from walking an 18 hole golf course. I mean, that, that's a big deal, right? And, um, and so making those changes, all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having no issue with the arthritis. I'm both of us lost a ton of weight and we're feeling healthier than ever. Brain fog is gone. You're up with a spring in your step at 5.30 in the morning instead of hitting snooze four times. And, uh, and I'm like, I gotta, I gotta start applying this to my patients. And, you know, after the first couple of patients, like, wow, this works so much better than the paradigm that I've been living in. Now, the problem is of course that our healthcare system, and I was at this time chief of medicine, it's just not built for this, right? It's in fact, built to encourage people to do other things. Um, and those other things typically are jumped directly to pharmaceuticals, right? Um, and ignore these root causes, right? And so um, I started trying to work this into my practice. I was seeing incredible results. And I, and I sat down with Jazz and, and uh, who was, you know, he, he, he works in a, essentially there was the room next to me at the hospital. And um, we didn't really know what each other were up to, but it turned out that he had come to the same conclusions and had encountered the same literature and had started practicing this way himself. And just like, it just, you feel almost like a fraud doing it the old way when you know that there's a better way. And so we ended up deciding that we were going to try and, and change things. The first thing we thought of was, okay, well, let's go apply for funding and try and set up a clinic within the hospital. And both of us started laughing hysterically at that idea because we'd been involved in the medical hierarchy long enough to know that that was never going to happen. Um, and so we ended up taking out a big loan and um, we uh, brought uh, Jazz's uh, uh, cousin on board uh, and the three of us uh, founded uh, what was originally Revive Lifestyle Medicine, which we changed the name to Aroga uh, a couple of years later. And um, we, we, we took a gamble on the idea that, that not only could we do better for our patients, we could do better for ourselves. And by that, I mean, when you're work is not aligned with, with what you want in life in terms of, uh, of, of the, um, 
in terms of, of, of how you feel about your work, right? It rots you from the inside out. And I think that that's one of the big problems with healthcare today, with healthcare practitioners today, is that by and large, we have this in it sense that we're not doing what we should be doing, but we have to keep doing what we don't want to do. And, and I think that's what the primary cause of, of physician and allied health practitioner burnout is. So anyhow, our goal with Aroga first and foremost was to, was to set our own practices of medicine straight. But after that, it's like, look, look at all of this incredible outcomes we're having. Well, the whole healthcare system's sick, it's falling apart. Well, maybe we're the green shoot. Maybe we're the opportunity to, 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 to recenter things and actually uh, improve healthcare for everybody. And so that became our vision. And, uh, and, and so uh, the idea of delivering medicine from the roots of solid lifestyle change, um, informed by evidence the whole way, um, is, is the core of, uh, of, of Aroga. Uh, ensuring that those allied health professionals that play a role in, in, in delivering this are all part of this team. That is a key piece of how Aroga works in a team-based environment. And our ultimate goal is to make that patient's disease not just uh, get better on paper, but actually make that person truly well again. And, uh, and, and, and on a bigger scale, we want our society to get well again. So that, that, that kind of summarizes where we're coming from. Make Canada well again. There you go. You could get a red hat that, uh, I I'd say a blue hat or a green hat. (laughs) Okay. Uh, jazz, did you want to add to that? How it was sort of what your origin story with, uh, was as well. For sure. Um, you know, I graduate, I finished, uh, you know, my residency in Toronto medicine at UBC 2013, 2012 while in elective in Toronto, you know, I, I grew up in Toronto. Um, um, my dad actually had a stroke. He was in his late fifties. Um, he was treated, you know, had got, he got, received excellent medical care in downtown Toronto, had a CEA, improved all of that, no deficits, was put on a cocktail of medications to, that were meant to protect him from a future stroke and a heart attack. Uh, and in uh, 2015, I was driving him to the hospital uh, with chest tightness, right? Um, and he had been diagnosed with a heart attack. And uh, uh, again, he had, a, you know, he got a stent placed and he felt a million bucks after that as well. Interesting thing is not many of the medications change when you go after a stroke and a heart attack, right? And the same medications are on. And so for my training as a, as a son, as an, as an internist, I was like, hmm, what can we do now? Like, we, what, what, what did we not do in between the first event and the second event that now we can maybe use now this opportunity that we've been given to use now to kind of prevent a third event? And I truly didn't know the answer to that based on my training, right? So that was when I started uh, doing a lot of research um, and I found the field of lifestyle medicine, which is actually a board certified specialty in the States now. Um, and, uh, you know, started reading, you know, the work of Dr. Dean Ornish down in California, Dr. Esselstyn at the Cleveland Clinic. These are, these are doctors that have published, you know, Dr. Dean Ornish published in 1990 in The Lancet when they took a group of patients um, and put, put them into two groups, two inter, uh, it was a control group with expert cardiology care and an intervention group where they put patients with an intervention of whole foods, plant-based diet, yoga, mild exercise, group visits, uh, you know, lots of support and actually showed a big, uh, you know, a difference at year one in terms of the plaque 
progression uh, in both groups, and then and as well as a difference that actually stayed until group, uh, year five at least when they published again. So I started making these lifestyle changes. I knew I had to make the changes myself. I was, you know, uh, you know, at the end of my residency, early staff, uh, working night shift, you know, not really uh, paying attention to what I was eating, gaining weight, get, you know, feeling tired all the time. And I knew that if I was going to help my dad make changes, I would need to make these changes first, right? So we started making these lifestyle changes. Started getting hitting hitting the gym, making sure I was taking time out for my you know mindfulness, um, eating you know a, a pretty plant forward diet, uh, getting rid of really the processed foods. That was the main thing: was processed foods and sugar, right? Um, and uh, started losing weight, started feeling a lot better. Uh, my dad got on board as well. Um, he's now you know he now. Walk, on average, on an average day, he's walking eight to 10 kilometers a day. He's at a trainer three times a week. Um, his friends are always asking him, why do you look younger every year while we're getting older every year, right? And so when you see this in your personal life, you see in your family, and I'm sad, and by that time, I, you know, I was working in Mississauga at the time, but then I, I got recruited to Victoria actually by Jesse when he was head of division. And uh, so I was working in hospital here in, in Victoria, and one of our duties at the hospital was to do a treadmill. It was like the chest pain clinic. So people would come in, you do a treadmill test, right? And so majority of the time, the treadmills are fine, but you know, you, you, you identify cardiac risk factors, right? And like, so, you know, you have, you know, you've got pre-diabetes or you have type two diabetes, your A1C is elevated, uh, your cholesterol is elevated. Majority of the time we just go, okay, we, we'll escalate your pharmacotherapy. But then I started asking people like patients in the hospital saying, hey, you know, I could put you on a statin now or I could delay it for three months if you want. We could try this. You know, there's this diet study at the University of Toronto called the portfolio diet shown to, you know, decrease LDLs by about 30 percent. You want to give it a go. And it was interesting. A lot of patients were looking at me wide eyed and saying, why have I never even heard that this is possible? Right. And so about half the patients were like, yeah, I'll try this for three months. You know, it's not a big deal. Right. And started getting, you know, patients with getting some successes, right? You know, decreased cholesterols, decreased, um, you know, A1Cs and just feeling better, a little bit of weight loss. And then, you know, at, at some point in, you know, late 2016, uh, me and Jesse went out for lunch one day and he started telling me, he's like, he's like, hey, bro, he's like, I've been, I've been changing the way I've been practicing medicine in the, in, in our internal medicine clinic. And I've been working with patients on diet and whatnot and this and that. And my first thought was like, did he find out that I've been doing this? And is he trolling me? Is he having some fun with me? Right. And I'm like, bro, are you screwing around me? Like, what's going on? He's like, no, what are you talking about? He's like, so he tells me, he's like, me and Nicole have been working on changes. It's been, it's, it's really changed our lifestyle. And I'm like, oh man, this is amazing. And it was at that point, it was actually Jesse's idea. He's like, you know, you know, our realization was at that lunch was that, hey, we're both on the same page. We, we want to, you know, be able to empower patients with, you know, information, um, you know, to be able to actually take take back control of their own health. But we did realize that the limitation of doing this as one-off in terms of as I'm your consultant physician, you have another family doctor, I'm seeing you in this like one visit, maybe I'll see you again in three months or maybe six months or maybe I won't see you again. There's a limitation to that, right? Because, you know, you're still a prescribing, you're still prescribing something, right? You're prescribing a medication or you're prescribing a diet. So you're just a prescriber and you're, you're not really adding a layer of support. And so during that conversation, it was a pretty deep conversation where you said, said, you know, we started imagining what are the possibilities if we just went from like, yes, just from, yes, one consultant saying, yeah, you know, this is what, these are the things that are going to help you. But then adding in that layer of support saying, yeah, this is what's going to help you. And 
here's a member of our team that's going to help you start to identify where the opportunities for change are today and where they could be next month and where they six months from now. The, you know, whether it's from a dietary standpoint, whether it's from a stress reduction standpoint, uh, you know, let's get your, you know, let's get you enjoying physical activity again, right? You know, I don't necessarily always call it exercise because it causes stress in some, you know, in patients' minds, but, you know, let's go for those fun walks again. Let's engage our, engage our bodies in a fun way. Um, you know, are there substances that we need to start, you know, start to decrease and minimize? Uh, and then just bringing back laughter, right? And, and then having it, and then really working on, you know, what's your sense of purpose in life, right? And um, these are sort of the, the sort of the pillars of lifestyle medicine, as we call them, that we start work, we work on. And it was that, it was that, it was that thing that that was the piece that was missing when me and Jesse were just doing this on, you know, alone in the hospital. We didn't have that team, right? And so the the, the genesis of the idea of Aroga at the time was we need to build a team environment for uh, to to fully support patients through this health journey, so that they can set the goals that they want to set, be supported by the team with evidence-based information, you know, and, you know, really working along the way. Uh, I kind of tell patients these days that, you know, in the, in the race of life, you're the race car driver where you're pissed off and every, every now and then you need to stop by and we need to, we need to tune things up and we got to make sure that you're, you're getting to the finish line. Right. Um, actually I got a lot of, have a lot of metaphors I use, but anyways, but it's one of them. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a really fun journey. We it's constant learning because we are actually in the we're actually in the business of behavior change, right? Um, and, and it's a it's a skill set that I didn't have uh, when I started this. Uh, I think I'm getting better. We're, we're both we're all getting better at it, uh, and it's constant learning because you're always looking at the latest research. Uh, as Jesse said, we are evidence based. Uh, we're evidence driven company. You know, we have a journal club. All of our practitioners are our physicians, our health coaches, our dietitians, clinical counselors. We all meet once a month, you know, on a on a seven a.m. Friday morning call, uh, where we review the uh, you know a latest study that one of our team members is presenting, and we talk about it, right, and talk about the merits of it and all that, because we always wanted to make sure that, you know, we are trying to you know be honest and and, and as as new evidence comes up and new information comes up, that that's quickly being translated into clinical care, um, so our patients can continue to thrive. Okay, that's awesome. So so I, I mean, so lifestyle medicine, I think is, it's a term that a lot of people have heard, um, but most people wouldn't be able to define. And you've, um, you've kind of hinted at the, the core principles of that, but just to encapsulate it, you know, it sounds like nutrition, physical activity, and then branching into more of the, you know, I don't know, spiritual is probably not the right word, but just the personal meaning of life and you know what's your philosophy and well, how are people going about approaching things yeah. so, you know how like how how would you uh, describe lifestyle medicine and you know the the elevator yeah. pitch to somebody sure so it's uh, and lifestyle medicine is you know it's the evidence-based approach to medicine uh uh surrounding six pillars of lifestyle medicine that have currently been you know that have been studied and that have been identified so it's it's sleep physical activity nutrition uh, stress reduction, social connection, and then substance use minimization. Right. Um, I, I add in the, I add in, I, I personally add the meaning of life and as a, as a, as a, as a pillar that's before all of that, because just because of what I found in, in clinical practices, you know, one of the things, you know, going back was when I was still working in hospital and start and starting lifestyle medicine, one of my colleagues once said to me was, Hey jazz, I know there's research studies out there and I know there's evidence for this, but, you know, let's face it, nobody really changes, right? 
And I thought that was one of, you know, I thought that was a pretty, uh, it was a sad comment. It was sad for, I was sad for that my colleague and for the state of the profession that that, that belief may or may not exist out there. And really it's, it's because I, I had the realization that I don't know how to help people change. I don't have that skill set. I wasn't taught that. And in the, in the course of learning how to help patients, you know, make some changes, I realized that, you know, everyone, everyone is searching for a purpose of why we're here and why, what, what are we doing? Right. And when you can align your, someone's health goals with their sense of purpose, um, things move so much faster in terms of willingness to make changes and all that. Right. And so it's, that's kind of where I add in like this meaning of life thing, you know, slightly uh, before, you know, even starting to talk about the pillars of lifestyle. So where, where do you start with somebody? So you, you've got a patient, they're seeing you for the first time. Like what, what does that first conversation look like? Sure. Jess, you want to take that? I know Jess, I think you actually have a better, uh, a better opener than I do. Uh, I really love how you do it. So I, I, I don't want to lift it and make it sound like it's mine. Oh, that's, uh, that's fine. Um, so a, it's funny. Um, you approach every patient. It's different, right? You know, Andrew, you see these patients, you see patients all the time. You know, every, every person's a unique uh, human being with a unique story and a new set of, a new, unique set of experiences. Um, but a lot, you know, just to give a, a general example, you know, a lot of my the patients that get referred to Jesse and myself are patients that have been identified by their um, doctors of having, you know, uh, obesity, type two diabetes, fatty liver disease, which is very, very common in Canada these days high cholesterol, maybe even secondary prevention from a cardiac standpoint, hypertension. Um, and so we'll get this referral letter and we'll, 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 we'll book them in. Patients will at home already fill out a questionnaire, a secure questionnaire and give send us a lot of information in advance. And then they'll come into our, our um, offices. So usually when I, one of my first questions after we've done our introductions with each other is I just ask my patients, why are you here? Um, and they're like, uh, I sometimes get the answer, you know, um, my, my doctor sent me, I go, okay, yeah, I understand that. But why did you show up? Right. And, um, and then they'll look at me and I'll be like, you know, I need to know why you, why are you here? What do you want to work on? And they're like, someone will say, for example, uh, I want to, uh, manage my diabetes better. I say, okay, why do you want to manage your diabetes better? And they're saying, well, I don't, you know, I heard there's lots of complications and things like heart attacks and this and that. And I'm like, well, why don't you want to have a heart attack? And then they start going, they look at me and they're like, as if, you know, that's a, it's a pretty crazy question, but I'm like, no, why don't you want to have a heart attack? Why don't want to die? Why don't you want to die? Right. Um, and that's when, you know, you'll, at first they look at, you know, sometimes there might be a pause, but then I start they all, all of a sudden I start getting all the reasons why they want to live. Right. And, you know, someone I've had everything, you know, I want to, I want to go to Everest space camp. It's been a dream of mine. I want to go to Machu Picchu. I want to walk my daughter down the aisle. You know, I want to do that, that walk in Spain to that, to that cathedral. These are the things that lifelong dreams I've had. I feel like I've been told with all my stuff that I have, with all my aches and pains, I'll probably never get to do this stuff. I, you know, these are, I enjoy spending time with my grandkids. I enjoy volunteering in my community. I enjoy going to church. I want to do all these things. This is why I want. And I go, that's why you're here. Right. And now let's talk about, you know, how we're going to make sure that we can have you either start to get to do all the things that you really want to enjoy that you, that you, that you feel really strongly inside, or how do we kind of make sure that we get to continue doing those for, for, for years on end. Right. And so that's like, that's the starting approach. That's how we, 
you know, just really start to connect with patients. It sounds like you're really trying to cement the patient's buy-in right off the bat and, and take a patient-led approach for, for your priorities. Absolutely. Well, I think it, it's, it's all about the patient. It's not about what I want. It's not, you know, and it's something that I've had to come to, right? It's like, but, but important to point like that, but that's very antithetical to how the healthcare system generally operates, right? Like we, we typically tell patients what the priorities yeah. are and say, you know, your, your blood work shows this. So we need to treat you yeah. with that. And then you're always chasing them down to make sure that are you compliant with your yeah. medications and are you, you know, doing this and that, that I told you you yeah. needed to do, which I mean, obviously we know is, is not the best approach, but it seems to be in a very strained, busy healthcare yeah. system. Uh, by the way, where specialists are mostly fee for service, it's all about throughput. I got to get people through. Yeah. So I can't spend that much time with yeah. you because, you know, I just got to keep it moving. So, yeah. You know, you, you guys took a big risk by leaving your hospital jobs where you were assured those patient volumes yeah. and, and going out on your own. So, you know, what, what, what was it that, that made you take that leap? Cause that's a, a significant shift in, in your, your professional yeah. practice. It's an interesting, uh, interesting question because uh, it's a question that I directly had posed to me by colleagues and relatives. Um, you know, my, uh, uh, my uncle actually, literally two weeks before I, I, I we, we started, uh, we were out camping, and my uncle said to me, he sort of uh, we were um, out getting water from a creek, and uh, he says to me, he says, okay, let me get this straight. You're walking away from guaranteed three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars a year for maybe nothing, and uh, and and I, I looked at him, I said, yep, that's what I'm doing. And, you know, it's, what's, what's interesting, I think, is that, um, and, and I think it actually gets at, uh, at, at the issue that most patients are having as well. It's right. We, we have um, in today's society, I think, that's driving not just the issues with, with you know, physicians and, and it, it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's the cause, the root cause, I think, of, of a large amount of disease out there. And that is that we're living bereft of meaning, right? Um, people don't experience meaning in their life. And I, I, I don't like the word happiness because I don't think that hedonism actually leads to a state of meaning. I think that, he, that, that happiness um, can be a product, a byproduct of the pursuit of, of, of meaningful activities. And one of the things that I had, uh, had myself realized was that the work that I was doing um, no longer was providing meaning to me. Um, and once you hit that point, you know, where, where you're doing something that is purely for the expedient um, purpose, right? The, 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 the purpose of work at that point when you're no longer finding meaning, it is purely to acquire money, right? Um, when you're doing something for expedience rather than meaning, you're going to rot your soul, right? And uh, and so for me, I, I knew that this was starting to really, it, it was starting to cause problems for me, you know. And 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 I, I think that it, it's helpful having come from that world because I can understand my patient struggles that much better, right? 
I think that at the core of a lot of problems is that that search for meaning. And, and there's some wonderful books that, that I, I used to prescribe writing on the same prescription pads as this, you know, read this book, right? And, and write in the book and, and, and where they can acquire what have you. But for me, it, 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 it was actually a matter of, of the job that I was doing previously, no matter how well compensated it was, no matter how secure it was, was no longer providing me with meaning. And I don't think there's anything more condemning you can say about a job. And so it, it, it was necessary to, to pile up all that dead wood, set it on fire and, and build something new. That, 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 was, that was my approach. I know that I'm lifting some of that from certain psychologists, but uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's very true. Tommy, I don't want to uh, hog all of the airtime for questions. I know you're, uh, you know, always well, burning I, I to was, get in there. <laughs> I was going to jump in and say, you know, I don't want my my entry into this episode to to be something that's made about me. But I uh, I wrote a fairly popular blog post uh, called "Happiness is a Carrot on a Stick," um, which received a lot of feedback a lot of it people revolting to the idea that happiness is not something you should seek, but instead you should seek meaning and purpose. And I, and I agree with you, you know, meaning and purpose can be quite uh, painful and tiresome. Uh, but it's what drives you to be the best version of yourself in so many other ways, because you want to be around and effective in something that actually offers something to the world and your community. Um, I wanted to, to step back and, and, and talk about the process that you guys go through with clients a little bit more technically. So, um, you know, to give you a case study based on uh, the average person who's probably listening to this episode. So let's say it's a female, she's 45 to 50. She's overweight. She has signs of, of metabolic disorder. Maybe that's her, her glucose is a little high. Uh, her insulin is a little high, but nothing that's been diagnosed. So she doesn't have diagnosed disease, but has been overweight and out of shape for a long time and is starting to see those uh, pre-diabetic uh, pre -diabetic markers or markers of, of underlying metabolic disorder. When someone like that comes into your clinic, what is the actual process? Uh, and if you want to use the six pillars to, to kind of walk it through, what is it that you guys do? Uh, and I'm hoping in answering that you might be able to touch on uh, the differences or what makes your approach maybe a little bit unique uh, in a medical setting? Sure. So the, uh, the first thing to recognize, and I say this to every learner, and we, we, we get everything from medical students up to actual full-on attendings who come and do rotations with us uh, to learn how we do it. The very first thing to recognize is that, is that anybody can diagnose diabetes. It doesn't take five years of residency and four years of medical school to be able to, to interpret an A1C, right? Anybody can do that. My job, Jazz's job, a, a lifestyle medicine practitioner's job is to get to why the patient has diabetes or why the patient is developing diabetes in the case of your, of, of your patient. And so um, the first thing, of course, is, is you have to have the data that, that shows that there is indeed an ICD-9 diagnosis there, right? Because otherwise our broken healthcare system will not pay for it. And of course, we, we do do private consultations for folks that are looking to prevent disease. But in, uh, in Canada, purely preventative medicine is, is not insured, right? 
Um, so we find a diagnosis, right? And, and, and prediabetes is a very common one. That's the, the case that you've used. Um, so we have the patient and, and of course we do, a, we, we make sure that we do our due diligence to make sure they don't have other diagnoses. Often you'll, you'll find fatty liver hepatitis, uh, which is incredibly common. You, you may find sleep apnea. You look for all of the, the related aspects of metabolic syndrome. And then we got to get down to why they're in the pickle that they're in. And the way I like to look at it is there's, there's really three levels um, to the, um, to the underlying problem, right? The first level and the level that gets maybe a minority of patients, but a significant minority is we unfortunately as a generation, and in fact, it's not just our generation, it's not just the millennial generation, it's not even the baby boomer generation, every post-war generation hasn't a bloody clue by and large about the connection between food and health. Um, and so, uh, what we end up doing or what I end up doing is I spend a fair amount of time um, actually going through with that person, their understanding of what exactly is healthy food and laying out in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a back and forth type of manner, uh, what that is and why that is, what, like, like what, is, what is healthy food, right? And, and why? Um, and a lot of patients will go away from that and they'll be like, they'll, you can see the light go on, right? So that's why I always like to, 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 to have at least a video uh, call. I mean, you can hear it now through the phone if you're really in tune to it, but the um, patient goes away, they change everything. And wow, you know, like, like they're, everything starts improving. That's a minority of patients, right? That's, that's the ones that our colleagues say, like, well, that's the unicorn, the one that, the one that actually takes your advice, right? They exist and they're not, a, they're not tiny minority, maybe one out of five patients, uh, you know, two out of five patients somewhere in there. But the thing is, is that, is that there's a fair number of patients, uh, a majority of patients where they already have a goodly portion of knowledge. And even then with all of the knowledge that, that they, that, that we can impart upon them, there's something bigger going on. Right. And that's, the, the, the tricky part, because that stuff is all coming from up here, right? Or coming from in here, right? And so it's very important to have that dialogue with that patient and build trust with that patient over time. Each, each visit exploring on a, you know, you pick up on a thread and you're going to explore that this time and explore that this time. And over time, you build that trust with the patient. And then all of a sudden, the, the core problem, the, 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 the center of the onion reveals itself. The patient has enough trust in you to be able to tell you something that they've never told anybody else, not even their, their, their spouse or their, their, their closest relatives, their friends and confidants. And that something is often really terrible things that happened to them in the past. That something is often, um, you know, a, some kind of revelation that, that, is, that is perhaps even shocking to them, right? Um, but once you get to that core problem, the, 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 the thing that is almost like an abscess on their soul, um, you can get around to fixing that, right? Like, is it, 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 a huge number of people have had their mental health destroyed by our misguided response to this pandemic. And, uh, and these people are now, they're, they're living in fear, um, they're getting to the understanding as to, as, as to, as to why it is that they've lost connection with their community, 
right? And this is one of those pillars of lifestyle medicine that I used to look at, ah, maybe it belongs there, maybe it doesn't. But that connectivity matters. And the only way that you're going to get to the core is to develop that relationship, have that back and forth with that patient where you're genuinely interested in them, right? And so what ends up happening is you, you want to pick a place where you can get an easy victory for them, right? You want to build their confidence. Most people, especially older people that are coming to us, they've tried things and they've failed. And not only that, but they've developed this internal narrative that they are a failure and it is not possible for them to do X, Y, Z, right? And so we pick something, whatever it is within, within that spectrum of, of, of items that can be improved in their lifestyle that will result in improvements in their health. We will pick that. And we will then guide that person towards making that improvement. That might involve bringing in a dietitian. That might involve bringing in a sleep specialist. That might involve bringing in a physiotherapist. Um, that may involve encouraging the person to go volunteer, right? That might, and, and, and I've had a few of these very interesting, but that, that might include having a long discussion with that patient about why they should call their son, who they've been estranged from for 12 years, and reopen that conversation because that wound is the thing that is causing all of these problems in their health, right? And so you, you do that and, and, and ideally you have a win and then you build on that win and you go from there. And, and, and essentially you're rebuilding that person's um, agency to make change happen, right? And as you do that, you help provide them with more information. You help um, direct them to resources. And where it's necessary to bring in specialists that are out, that they're able to do things that internists are not able to do. And I'm thinking really about uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and certain types of psychotherapy. You bring in the, the therapist, you bring in the psychiatrist. Um, and in this way, you end up treating that whole person, but you do it in, um, you know, to, to your point about, about um, you know, the, the uh, thou shalt do this type of medicine. This is more a, more, more a way of, of going along with the patient on the journey and, and acting more as a, uh, as, as a field guide than as a commanding officer. So that, that kind of gives you an idea of, of how that works. Are you guys familiar with, uh, with the origin of the ACEs study and Vincent Felitti and the story behind that? Um, no, I'm not actually. Um, the, the ACEs study, which, you know, is used to, to basically, uh, have a rating of a person's trauma through adverse life experiences. That was originally an obesity study. Uh, and what they found is people who were much more likely to be severely obese and unable to keep weight off, even in a completely controlled environment when they lost weight, and then they go back out into the world in an uncontrolled environment, the people who are much more likely to gain it back are people who had experienced some level of, of trauma, a parent in jail, growing up in poverty, sexual assault, things like that. And I bring that up because uh, in my experience, I found that people who have the most turmoil for long-term periods of their life that leave these sorts of marks and scars are ones who turn to things like food, uh, TV, uh, laziness, things like that as a form of self-soothing. Do you guys find 
those sorts of issues in the clinic? And if so, how do you how do you understand and address those sorts of deep personal issues that can lead somebody to the sort of lifestyle behaviors that prevent them from taking control of their health? Jesse, you 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 do a lot of work on this area. You want to do this? Yeah, I was just I, I I've been talking more. I was gonna. Oh, but give you, no, yeah, I was like, gonna give you your 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 turn, right, man? Cool. Um, but but no, I, I I can talk about this at at length, right? So, um, you know, I I I like the concept, and and I I, I often. I often talk about this in this manner with patients, right? Of, um, of of the idea that that if you have an abscess of bacterial infection in your in your body somewhere, say you know you've got an abscess in your skin, you've got an abscess in your in in your in your lung, right? You're not going to cure that abscess, no matter how much antibiotics you throw at that patient, right? You, you you're just not going to do it, right? And Trauma is like an abscess on the soul. And unless you get that abscess properly cleaned out and, and allow it to scar properly, so that person is able to come to terms with what happened, you're not going to be able to make them better, right? It's, 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 it's like, a, it, like I said, it's like a staph aureus abscess that keeps on seeding infections all around the body, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a very similar concept to that. And so addressing, it's, it's an extraordinarily complex thing to address, right? Um, because every trauma situation is different. I mean, I'm working with a guy right now who is a Rwanda genocide survivor. His father was decapitated by machete in front of him. Um, and he was only able to avoid the same fate because he dove out the window and managed to find a hiding place and they couldn't find him. Um, and uh, here's a guy who copes by drinking a two six of alcohol every day, right? And um, you know, it, it's uh, it's obviously had the effects that it would be expected to have on his health. Um, but getting at the core of that is uh, is is really crucially important, right? Um, and I think that unfortunately, when it comes to trauma, we're 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 fighting with one possibly two hands tied behind our backs, right? Like we have access to excellent therapists, but you know. Are, and it may be different in Ontario, but here in British Columbia, mental health services are not funded appropriately, even, even in the tiniest, right? Like, you know, you, you cannot get a therapist. The people that need therapists the most can't get therapists. It's not covered by our, by our government, right? It's no and different so, here. Yeah. And so here, as, as a general internist, I'm having to, to pick up these skills uh, to, to do rudimentary psychotherapy on patients, right? And, and even that has an impact, right? You know, uh, helping that person, um, you know, articulate what happened in a safe environment um, is is important, right? So that they can they they can help come to terms with that. If we have the ability to plug them into a counselor, because we have counselors with Aroga, but of course they have to be paid, right? And so usually that requires that the person has uh, through their union uh, a plan that covers counselors. Fortunately, Brit British Columbia has many unionized workers, and so we. We, we are able to often get coverage for that and then, and then the, they get the therapy that they need. But even then, therapy is only one piece of the puzzle, right? Um, I, I'm very excited. I think many in our clinic are very excited about the, uh, the, the possibilities um, of uh, psychedelic assisted therapy. And um, I know this is now starting to get a little bit off the beaten path and it, it's outside of what we are actively doing, but 
we are aware of the evidence and we are desperately interested in, uh, in seeing the government legalize medicinal psilocybin, um, see the expansion of ketamine-assisted uh, psychotherapy. Um, you can get ketamine-assisted psychotherapy in British Columbia. It's just going to cost you 5,000 bucks, right? Um, and there's no reason for that, right? Um, so there, yeah, so there, there, you're highlighting huge barriers in the healthcare system to, to access based on essentially socioeconomic status. So is, is it fair to say, so if, if somebody doesn't have the funds or an insurance plan that will cover the counseling at Aroga, or I'm not sure if you have um, psychiatrists also on staff yeah. with you, um, if, if they don't, if they're not able to cover, you know, the, the clinical psychology side of it, do you sort of just add that into what you're doing during your billable hours? That's exactly right. And that's why I say is, is uh, this is something that, that, that in all truth, every physician, except perhaps the pathologist and radiologist should have as part of their, their repertoire. They, of skills, they need right? it for their themselves and their colleagues. Well, <laughs> I'll, get it, I'll get in there. Just, <laughs> so one, one, one of the things that we, that we have utilized is in British Columbia, we are remunerated for a group medical visits, right? And so sometimes, you know, try, you know, trying to help people with patients with emotional resilience building, uh, we have, we have, we have actually have a team of physicians that uh, will do group medical visits in, uh, in addressing certain, certain sort of areas, right? So emotional resilience building, uh, power of change, uh, you know, physical activity groups, mindfulness group, yoga group, things like that. So we try to get patients plugged into as many things that, as that we can in terms of that are, that are publicly funded so that if patients can't afford, you know, uh, extra dietitian counseling or extra clinical counseling that they're just not, that they're still being supported by uh, physicians who have gotten further training in, in a way that can actually still be a benefit. So what would, do you have a sense for what's the breakdown in Aroga for how much of your services provided are publicly insured versus private pay? I would say that the vast majority, the vast majority is still um, publicly funded. Yeah. Okay. So that, I mean, that's, that's our goal. Our goal was to ensure that, that we have the bear, like we have a pretty low barrier to entry for services for patients. Right. And so we wanted to make sure that, every, you know, this is a we're being for the community. We don't want it to just be for a select group only. Right. That yeah. the publicly uh, the publicly funded stuff is absolutely lion's share. Uh, it's it's uh, the stuff that you need to have uh, that you know. Unfortunately, they've chosen to instead do dental dental care and pay more to the pharmaceutical companies. Um, is the mental health aspect right? And it it breaks my heart that people have to pay for that. Um, but you know, for therapy outside of what we can learn as doctors to do. Um, that that's the one aspect that, that, that that's an issue, right? I mean, uh, at Aroga, um, the other pillars are all very well handled within the the realm of uh, of the public healthcare system, right? I mean, um, we we employ dietitians that work with the physician, um, and therefore the patient doesn't have to pay for the dietitian unless they want personalized meal planning or, or personalized uh, you know care around that, because obviously that's not that, that's a different matter. If they want to have ongoing contact with a dietitian, you know, where they can bounce recipes and ideas off of them, okay, well, that's a private service, right? But they get to see a dietitian as part of that consultation. I pay for that out of my overhead, right? Um, and why do I pay for that? Because it, it results in better care, right? Um, you know, you look at uh, at sleep, right? The, the sleep is such an important pillar. Well, we've we've got we've got sleep specialists. 
We've got a, even a sleep dentist who's part of our team, right? Um, so we've, we've got those aspects of, um, of, uh, uh, of care. When it comes to exercise, um, we've got physicians who have a very particular interest in that, whether it's directly as a physiatrist or whether it's a family physician who has a particular interest in that. And again, these things delivered in the group format um, allows for the, um, and again, this is a difference between here and Ontario, right? Um, the, the ability to deliver that in a group format not only gives the patient more access to these doctors, allows us to get creative with what we're able to do, um, but it also allows those patients to connect with other patients. And it's surprising how often when they're in a group of, uh, for example, uh, we have, we have, um, we have uh, uh, group sessions in yoga and meditation, right? Because there's evidence for certain diseases. You speak of diabetes, uh, uh, focused meditation twice a day reduces the A1C by half of a point. I mean, there was a, there's, a, there's a trial that backs that up. Um, so anyhow, um, the meditation groups, these people will get together on their own outside of the group sessions and, and uh, it helps them form the community. And of course, that's another piece that's missing for so many people. Um, and so we do make the most of what we're able to do. And so for a patient to successfully um, work with us, um, by and large, the only major piece of the puzzle that's missing is the therapist, if the therapist is needed. And that is a huge flaw with our healthcare system. And there's nothing I can do about that other than, than the bone up on my own ability to do CBT and other types of therapy within the limitations of being an internist. So of, of the, the six pillars, Jazz, that you talked about, I mean, you, we've, we've talked about, well, we talked a lot about the, the mental health stuff and the approach to try to unearth some of those things that are going on and try to address those alongside everything else that's going on with the pillars. But would you say that there's, there are, you know, one, two or three things that give you the best return on investment for, for focus areas? You know, is it sleep? Cause I, I find that's really uh, underutilized a lot of the time. Is it, is it the nutrition plan? Like so, what? Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. Um, I used to, you know, I, I we use the word pillars cause that's, you know, sort of the way it's, it's been defined in lifestyle medicine. And so when you think about pillars, you think of them as separately, right. But in practice, they actually really melt. They're all intertwined. Right. I mean, I'll give you an example, like, you know, having a patient who is struggling with cravings and we were on the verge of, you know, starting them on Contrave uh, to help with cravings, right? Because, you know, it was just, I'm hungry all the time, Jazz, I'm hungry all the time. But then I had read this study uh, about sleep and, and its relationship to cravings. And, you know, in Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, he, he talks about these multiple studies that they've done where they take patients and they sleep deprive a group of them. And then the other group gets, you know, a full amount of sleep. And then they take them to a buffet the next morning for breakfast. And they see how much do you eat and what do you eat, right? People that sleep, uh, that get less sleep generally will have higher levels of hunger in the next morning. And not only that, they'll actually gravitate to high fat and high sugar, right? Um, and so I looked at her, I was talking to this patient. I was like on the verge of starting on a medication to help her with the cravings. And then I see that her sleep is like, you know, five and a half hours. I'm like, can you do me a favor? Can we try to get that to six and a half to even just to seven hours, seven hours? We'll try this. And we talked about strategies of sleep hygiene that we could, you know, implement. The next time I saw her about eight weeks later, she's like, my, my, my cravings are actually much improved. Right. So I guess from a, from a, so I guess what I would say is 
bang for your buck if you're not getting if you if you can get at least seven hours at least six and a half seven hours of restorative sleep so actually good quality sleep that we sometimes don't get even when we're on medication for sleep so working on sleep hygiene if we can do that we can uh, get rid of you know shop around that you know as we say like the, the outside aisles in the grocery store right really trying to get um the most like uh, trying to get the uh, high the, the you know some people call crap calorie rich highly processed um you know foods getting those you know minimizing those minimizing you know sugar really focusing on getting lots of water-based foods on your plate lots of uh fiber-based flu- uh, foods on your plate getting out for a walk every day even with even for a short time it's shown it's shown to help right uh, multiple benefits of that right from you know from the physical benefits from the mental benefits um, and then making sure that you know you are connecting with others right you know i think uh, one of the you know one of the fallouts in the last couple of years has been loss of connection uh, you know i was working with a patient who hasn't really hadn't really seen a friend or family in two years right and so trying to encourage people like actually you know try to connect in whatever way if it's through online that, that's safe or, or going outside and what whatnot right just making sure that you're we're, we're, humans are social animals right we, we we thrive in groups and it's one of the things that you know jesse sort of highlighted there is that when we've seen patients when we work with them in groups we've seen like their progress accelerate that much more quickly right there's something about that group environment where you find that support you find um, ideas and actually a lot of our physicians that facilitate the group medical visits, you'll, you'll, they'll actually say that they don't actually have to do a lot of the conversation um, because some, a patient will bring up bring up a, a challenge or something that they're facing or right, and another patient will be like, well, well I, I went through that a month ago or last week, and here's a couple of things that I tried, and someone else will chime in, and all of a sudden they've got they come in with a, a you know a challenge and they already have like seven really great ideas that they can pick and choose from, right? So group helps creating a community of health, making sure you're sleeping, get the fiber and water into your diet, uh, and then let's move every day. Uh, just a funny anecdote about the shopping around the outside of the grocery store. Yeah. So I, think, I think some of the chains have figured this out. Yeah. And so I, there's a there's a new metro close to my house, and I went in and all of the garbage is right around the perimeter, oh, yeah. like That's all of their fine. freezers with the prepared processed yeah. food. Well, Pallets you know, of Fruit Loops. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting. I, 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 you know, it's sometimes not as feasible for everybody, but you know, farmers markets are probably you know the best. You know, I think even just uh, encouraging people to start like small gardens at home, like even on your patio or in your balcony. You know, there's lots of stuff that we can start to grow at home, um, and that stuff that will like pay a lot of dividends, right? Not not just your four marijuana plants. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, knew, I knew something about BC bud was going to come in. <laughs> you know, you know the um, yeah, yeah, four, four marijuana plants that <laughs> they should run a helicopter around this this island. Um, the um, the the um, uh, the reality, in my view, is is that um, is that um, yes, um, all of the uh, all of the other items play into it, but the one the one that seems to 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 be overwhelmingly important for most patients is nutrition, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's the thing that's broken. The big question is why is it broken? Right. Um, the, uh, at, at the end of the day, um, a processed food diet, which is what 80% of the food that's eaten by Canadians is, um, is guaranteed to make you sick. 
Um, it, every human being is susceptible to type two diabetes. It's just about getting insulin resistant enough. And um, it's, uh, it, it, at the end of the day, that is something that must be fixed in order to cause good health in general. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it, it may not be the most important for individual patients, but it, it has to be fixed as part of a treatment plan. And um, the, 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 the issue is at its core is that uh, is, is the difference between whole foods and processed foods, right? And, uh, and, and how processed food in general is toxic to the human body. It's toxic to all living things, in fact, not just humans. I mean, we, I, I know many people who inject their cats with insulin. That's because the cat's been eating cat kibble and not eating mice and, and other things cats are meant to eat. Um, but, uh, but that has to be fixed. And, and, and that, um, so is that individually the most important thing? Well, that really depends on whether or not there's an underlying problem that's deeper than the, the food issue that's driving the food issue. But if the food issue is not fixed, good frickin' luck fixing, uh, fixing the diabetes. I'm sorry, but was that a joke about people giving their cats insulin? No, no, that's a thing. That is insane. I've never heard of that before. I, I know of three people who have diabetic cats requiring insulin. One of them is my aunt. Wow. You, just having a cat is one thing. Having a cat and then giving it insulin to manage its diabetes is just beyond my did ability. Do you recommend <laughs> Ozempic for her cats? Or? <laughs> you, know, you know what? I, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if Ozempic becomes available for cats. I mean, it's a weekly yeah. injection, it's convenient and, and they can make tons of money and it's not terribly regulated. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I don't give them ideas. They're rich for, enough already. Uh, for the nutrition, I noticed on on your website, uh, it specifically talks about uh, plant-based meal plans. Uh, is is a plant-based diet? Is that would you say that's sort of the foundation of the nutrition that you recommend, or do you recommend all sorts of different dietary patterns? You know, just depending on who's in front of you. So it's interesting. It's an interesting question. You know, we try to not to get into like diet wars and all that kind of stuff. You know, so. I think I think I speak for majority of uh, the vast majority of the the, the, the physicians in our in our uh, company, right? So I use the word plant based quite generalized, right? Um, I think regardless if someone's on you know on on the on, on a ketogenic diet versus low fat diet versus you know paleo diet and all that or or no diet whatsoever, most people can agree that we do need more whole foods in our diet. Right, and we need to get, you know, really need to get rid of the processed uh, foods and the processed sugars, um, and then, and then the rest of it. It's, and then I, I really, you know, if you look at the Canadian surveys, you know, with food, uh, patient food uh, sort of diaries and all that, we actually are lacking a lot of plants in our diet, right? And so, I usually say, you know, plant predominant, right? I, you know, if someone, there's no real, you know, in terms of heart disease. The studies that showed where you know they they were bordering on actually getting plaque regression actually were plant based diets right for heart disease patients, um, but again it's not like they did a study where they looked at someone if you have a plant if you if you're predominantly eating plants and you have you know meat or chicken fish you know a couple times a week what does that do right we don't know what that does right uh, but we do know like if you follow you know a predominantly a, a Mediterranean diet 
um, that there is research for good outcomes, right? Um, even the Nordic diet, which, you know, in, in North, from, from the Nordic countries, the Nordic diet is a heavily plant-focused diet with, you know, some, you know, with animal products and meat built in. The Mediterranean diet, heavily plant-focused plant diet. So I always try to get patients just kind of like in that realm of things. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, um, and then, yeah, I, don't, I certainly yeah. don't mean to drag you into any, yeah. any sort of <laughs> yeah. diet war by any means. But the truth, yeah. and, then, and then so it's like, well, we, we start with like, you know, a generalized approach, like, you know, getting into that, that area. And then it's like, then it is individualized as well, right? Like, I've had patients that do, do much better with having a much, you know, more avocado, nuts, seeds, olive oil, but, you know, you know, higher fat content, they do much better in terms of their satiety and all of that. Right. And some patients do better with grains and some people, you know, don't do as well. Right. And so it's like, it's, 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 uh, we, we figure it out together. I've just, I've found in my practice. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jesse. I was going to say, I couldn't agree more with, uh, with, with what jazz, uh, has had to say on that. I mean, uh, the, the one thing that is common to all of the dietary advice that we give is that processed food, especially refined sugar, is extraordinarily bad for your health. Now, however, we need to act in order to get them away from that. Yeah. That that's uh, that that's that is that is that's the main engine here, right? Like everything else um, is, is fine tuning. And yes, you know, I say to patients, look, you know, like we may have to go make further changes, but the thing that matters the most is, is, is the sugar and the processed foods. If we can, if we can get rid of that, that's probably going to fix the problem. We're probably not going to have to go after, you know, your, your, your um, sirloin steak on a, on, on, on the Saturday afternoon, but we might have to, it just depends. We'll, 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 we'll see how it works. Right. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, I mean, if you apply the 80, 20 principle, then probably more than 80% of the benefit is going to come from eliminating the the sugar and, and processed stuff. I just always get a little bit triggered with the, the plant-based terminology. Cause I, I, I believe that there's a, people have a significantly insufficient amount of protein intake across the board. And I always kind of tell patients, you know, we need to feed the body that you want to have. And most of the time that means reducing fat mass, but at the same time, increasing lean body mass and people generally aren't eating nearly enough protein in order to, uh, to promote the lean body mass development. Yeah, the, the, it, it's kind of an interesting point because the data would tell us that we are having dramatically more protein today than we, had 50 or hundred years ago and we we're dramatically less healthy. Right. Um, and so, uh, it, it really, it comes down to the, the, um, the, the type, right. The type of food a person eats, right. I mean, we are what we eat and, you know, I often bring this in cause, cause people often will say, okay, well, you know what, and, and I actually was one of these people, you know, 10, 10 or 15 years ago, what the hell's the difference between, you know, meat coming from a cow that's farmed, um, you know, that I'm getting from my, you know, Calgary Stampede burger. I like to pick on that because it's got to be the least healthy piece of meat you can find right up there with McDonald's. Um, and, uh, and, and compare that to a moose, right? What is the difference, right? Protein's protein, right? No, it's not. Um, it, it turns out that when you compare a moose to, um, to farmed meat, right, a wild moose, the, uh, the, the content that's in that moose in terms, if you break it down by its nutritional quality, it actually much more closely resembles a wild salmon than the, uh, the, than the farmed beef, right? And uh, that's important because it's rich 
by virtue of that very rich in omega-3 fat, much, much lower in omega-6 fat. Um, and the overall saturated fat content per 100 grams of meat in a moose is one gram, right? In a standard piece of farmed beef, it's 30. And um, that sort of ratio is very similar with chickens and, and, and other types of farmed animals. And at, at the core of it, you know, if, we want, if we're, if we're going to talk about, about the nutritional aspect, right? The core of it is, is, that, is that what we are eating, um, whatever it ate, we are eating, right? And so um, it, it, if a person is going to have you know, protein, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to call it a macronutrient, right. You, you got to know what the running dogs are with that protein, okay? because those running dogs make a big difference. And uh, yes, not everybody's able to, you know, not everybody has a buddy who, who, who hunts moose. Right. But my point in, in illustrating that is, is that the, the, the type of meat that a person selects, it, it makes as big of a difference um, as, as any of those other aspects that, that, that other people talk about. So that, 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 that'd be my tip. Jazz has his own. I can see he wants to add. No, I was just going to, no, I was going to say my, my, per, my, I, I, I am, I'm in personal training. My personal trainers were worried about me getting enough protein on a plant-based diet. So we actually charted out what I do on a daily basis and I'm hitting anywhere between 140 and 160 grams of protein a day. Right. Oh, that's, um, that sounds right. Probably just because well, because I'm well, because I am trying to put on mass. I'm nowhere close to Tommy yet, uh, as we can all see. <laughs> uh, but I'm working on it. He's mostly okay. neck. Yeah. You have been inspiring me for the last hour. I have to tell you this. Well, one of the funny things about <laughs> about that is, you know, you look what what is one of the most protein dense foods you can eat? It's the lentil, right? Um, and so it's uh, we we use that in in bariatric medicine all the time, right? Is is okay? Well. You know, the lentils ideal is a bunch of reasons why, right? And one of those reasons is because it's so rich in fiber, it stimulates a whole pile of GLP-1 production. Well, you don't need Ozempic if you can make your own, right? And, and it works rather well. The problem is, is that unless you grew up eating lentils and you got recipes handed down to you, it's a big freaking challenge to make them taste good. Um, and so, uh, so that, that's, uh, that, that's part of the, ch the challenge, right? Is, is uh, you know, Great line that I heard, I, and I and I would love to be able to attribute this quote, but I, I Jazz might know who I'm quoting when I say this, is you know people talk about um, about genetic inheritance, right? Um, that that they have heart disease because of their genetics, right? And yeah, your DNA is heritable, right? You know what else is heritable? Your cookbooks, right? Your habits, those are heritable too. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I'd, I'd actually like to hear um, Tommy's take on the the meat bit for a second. He so he has an unknown to you uh, alias. What is it? The meat man or the meat <laughs> meat merchant? No, it's, it's, or it's definitely not meat man. I was gonna say I was uh, you know I was really starting to like you guys until we began talking about diet. No, I'll re I'll reserve my my opinions to myself because I don't want to uh, derail the podcast, but. Uh, I would suggest you guys read a book called uh, Sacred Cow, if you haven't. And that's by Diana Rogers and uh, Rob Wolf. And it gets into a lot of the 
especially the old data and old research that leads to a lot of the meat-based conclusions that we have uh, as far as attributing any sort of disease outcome to meat talks about uh, sustainability issues, environmental issues. And it's just, it's good to to read those sorts of, of counterpoints. But I'm, I'm certainly along the lines with, with Andrew that um, I don't think there's any, there's certainly no clear evidence to suggest that meat leads to negative outcomes, assuming that someone is also active, not a heavy drinker, not a smoker, um, and doing all the other things they're supposed to do and not consuming uh, processed foods. And just like, just like in politics, I think we spend way too much time talking about little differences that don't matter rather than all the commonalities that really, you know, move the needle. And that's the things that you shouldn't put in your body, whether it's, you know, processed sugar, alcohol, you know, uh, you know, substances that are more obvious. Um, and, and as long as you're putting whole foods in your body, I don't think the combination really matters. You're going to increase your longevity. You're going to feel better. You're going like everything that a person wants, they can get from like, I, I believe if you're, and this isn't my diet, but if your diet was 80% meat or 80% plants, I think as long as you're doing all the things that you're supposed to be doing and not consuming all of the clearly problematic foods, you're probably going to get close to the same outcome as far as uh, longevity and, and disease avoidance. At the end of the day, the, uh, the second most powerful industry in the world is the processed food industry. Uh, it is larger than the oil industry. It is larger than the military industrial complex worldwide. Um, the only industry larger than the processed food industry is the banking industry worldwide. Um, they want nothing more than us to get into a debate about, um, you know, oh, you know, is it, is it meat? Is it not meat? No, no, no. Because then people have this, well, there's no right answer. I guess I'll go back to my fudge bar, right? No, the common enemy is sugar. Big sugar is really bad, you know, and uh, and they've been bad for centuries, right? There wouldn't be slavery in the in, in in North America. It never would have happened if it weren't for big sugar. They brought it here, right? They've been bad for five hundred years, and they're still just as bad as they ever were. Yeah, I think that's that's an important point to make. And but Jesse has no strong feelings on this. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, uh, Jesse's webcam is starting to rattle a little bit, getting fired up over there. It's uh, you know it speaks to what Andrew talked about. Uh, you know how they're starting to to place the processed food around the perimeter, and you know that that is those food companies saying, "Hey, to the grocery stores, you need to start taking this stuff, and you need to move it into the places that people are frequenting." Uh, in an attempt to avoid being tempted by these sorts of foods, you know, you can get into packaging, how things are sold to children, how are things are advertised to children. You know, you think about uh, you think about the the lengths that we'll go to with things like uh, cigarettes, alcohol, to try and keep that away from kids, or pharmaceutical advertisements uh, to to citizens. But something like that is is okay, and they're getting away with. And I agree with you there, one hundred percent. Like I can't think of something that's more that's more common for people to ingest that is clearly unhealthy and destructive that that we allow these companies to get away with that that sort of uh that sort of behavior well and and, and that's and that's really you know if, if on that side of things really where we want to go um 
with medicine is we've, we've got to figure out how to tackle that challenge and not be corrupted along the way, right? There, there was a study put out by Lustig back in 2017 or 18 in the journal Gastroenterology. And um, he found in studying the San Francisco Unified School District's grade one students, six-year-olds, that fully 50% of them had either NAFLD or non-alcohol related steatohepatitis. This is sugar hepatitis, right? This is the leading cause of liver cirrhosis, liver transplantation and liver related death in Canada and the United States today, even bigger than alcohol. Half of grade one students, right? This is how big the problem is. All right, so I see, uh, so Jazz has got to get to, to a meeting and uh, I actually have to you know, do some real people work today too and see patients in the hospital but uh, just just one quick question so i think one thing people would want to know is you know will you be people's family doctor i know you have family doctors at the clinic but do you actually act as the you know the rostered family physician for anybody or is it only on a on a referral basis yeah, yeah we're go ahead jess so we, we do have some patients who are rostered as family uh, practice patients of our family medicine doctors at the clinic, um, uh, but the vast majority of our patients are actually referred for, for, the, for the internal medicine care and the endocrinology care and all of that. Um, we, are, we do have like, we're, we have got an office open now uh, outside of Victoria in Ottawa, uh, where it's primarily specialist care, but as we build the team, there will be family medicine doctors that will start be able to take on a roster of patients. Um, our next project is also in Brampton, Ontario, where we are, you know, the, uh, our, our lead out there, our director is an internist, uh, Dr. Mangut, um, and he, he will be building a team of internists as well as family doctors around him. And there will potentially, there will potentially be an opportunity for getting rostered as, as patients of those family doctors at that, at that location. Um, same thing in Victoria, we've got family doctors that have uh, uh, primary care practices and then uh, we are actually opening it up in Vancouver in the next couple of weeks as well. Okay, that's awesome. And I think, um, yeah, for our listeners in Ontario, then that's that's good to know that there's uh, some presence here. And I assume you do virtual care? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Do, so, yeah, virtual and in-person care. So people can check out your website at aroga.com and, and self-refer. And, and, and the other thing, just, just for closing, is, is uh, as we're expanding quite rapidly around Canada, right? We're looking for more doctors, right? People that have, uh, that have decided that they want to find a different way of doing what they're doing, um, uh, that are excited about, uh, about taking the lead and, you know, what amounts to a revolution really. Um, and, uh, we can, we, we're, we're interested in seeing internists, family physicians, endocrinologists, psychiatrists, you know, most patient facing medicine, um, is lifestyle medicine amenable? And uh, we're, we're actively interested in growing our team. All right. That's awesome. Noted. <laughs> um, yeah, I really <laughs> appreciate your time today, guys. Uh, I think it's awesome to, to really showcase that there is a different way of, of approaching healthcare. And I, I really hope that this only continues to grow from here because this is, I mean, this is what society needs unless we're, we're all going to go bankrupt together. So, <laughs> all right. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Andrew, yeah. and Tom for having us on today. Um, yeah, we'll look forward to future discussions as well. I think it'll be Great. fun. I think, uh, I think there was some good, lively discussion. <laughs>
Yeah, we'll have to, to set up a part two, I think, and maybe uh, dive into the weeds a little bit more. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Right. Happy to. Thanks a lot. The content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice and is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I mean, clearly not when I'm speaking. I'm not a doctor, but that goes for the real doctor, Dr. Appleton as well. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health. You should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted Huh? Transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in this podcast.